The Single Tracks Podcast is brought to you by TPC, the pros closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade, and TPC has an industry-leading selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes, plus frames, wheels, and accessories. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced, and every bike includes 30-day returns. Visit tpc.bike forward slash singletracks and enter code singletracks40 to save $40 on every order over 200 That's the pros closet at tpc.bike slash singletracks and look for the link and coupon code in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Goat. In 2006, Goat and two friends set out to ride mountain bikes from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, the southernmost tip of South America. And after three and a half years of travel, the trio completed the mother of all bikepacking trips. Riding the spine is just one of the many adventures Goat has experienced over the years, including living in a treehouse and building and working on countless bikes. Thanks for joining me, Goat. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you moved around a good bit and traveled with your family when you were growing up. So was it like natural for you to continue into that lifestyle into adulthood? Absolutely. You know, both my parents are um, adventurers. My grandfather was an ambassador. My uh, my mother was a big wall climber. And uh, my father's a pioneering whitewater rafter. You know, he's done more first descents than anyone else in the world. Um all over the world. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we I grew up rock climbing and rafting and traveling quite a lot. Family, like, lived traveling for a couple of years in Mexico and around the U.S., um, climbing the highest peak in every state. So, yeah, I mean, my upbringing absolutely kind of pushed me towards the lifestyle I still have, um, or at least made, made it make a lot of sense. In fact, when I... yeah. I mean, I could see it going both ways, though, right? Like, you know, a lot of kids, they want to do the opposite of what their parents do. They want to rebel. That's true. So, like, did you have siblings that, like, chose a different path? They're like, no, I'm going to get a nine to five. I'm going to live in the same place and get a house in the suburbs. Yeah. You know, I I have two siblings and uh, the youngest, my sister, has always been a little bit more on that tip. Back to when she was, when we were all in high school, she was the only person in my family who had a a real job. And we, we like to laugh about that, <laughs> but yeah. And, you know, she has a, a master's degree in the family and it works for um, UCSF. And uh, yeah, my brother is also a little more like settled down, but both of them are still like world travelers and uh, adventure nature lovers and whatnot. So didn't fall that far from the tree, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you ever consider that, that path? Like, because I thought I read that you had a master's degree, too. I do. I do. I have a master's degree in uh, education. I was a high school history teacher for about a year. Oh, interesting. And uh, uh, I loved college. I had um, a great experience there. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, teaching high school, public high school was definitely not for me then, and it probably still isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be everybody's favorite teacher, though. You you got like stories for days. Yeah, you know, I, my students did enjoy having me as a teacher, and I feel like I was probably pretty good at it. But yeah, it was just the structural problems of the way public school works is mm. 
was just really hard on me. And I think it's really hard on students as well. Just not set up well. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you know, when I left, um, to go on the riding the spine trip after my master's and whatnot, my dad said to me, finally, it's about time. You've been wasting way too much time in college. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Such validation. Totally. Well, I mean, so this kind of, this kind of brings to mind, I was reading that you were in the Boy Scouts and, you know, scouting is a pretty like traditional conformist activity, but from reading about your experience, it sounds like you felt like really empowered to take things in a different direction in your troop. Like, tell us a little bit about that. Like how, as, as like a young person, how did you feel uh, so empowered to, to really like make scouting your own thing? Yeah. It was a funny collision of uh, opportunity or like vacuum of leadership. And then I, I'd say like all of my, um, or a large part of my self-confidence and being able to choose my kind of unusual path comes down to my super supportive parents and upbringing. But yeah, first, first of all, the, uh, Mm. the scouting thing, I grew up in a pretty small town up in, uh, the Sierra foothills, California, and both the Mormon church and, uh, the congregational church wanted to have, wanted to sponsor Boy Scout troops. But there weren't enough boys, <laughs> so they had to share one. <laughs> and uh, our troop, okay. <laughs> and our troop actually had two different numbers, so it was technically two different troops. Mm-hmm. And you'd think that would mean there would be like extra leaders or like adults who are interested in mm-hmm. leadership roles, but for whatever reason, there just weren't. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Mormon Church would like basically appoint somebody a scoutmaster like you must do this and okay. and they would yeah. do it but they do it for like as little time as possible or at least that's how it seemed to me <laughs> and so yeah so yeah the with the like adult leadership fully checked out somebody had to like make sure things happened and it turned out to be me mm-hmm. And how old were you when, like, when you realized this and when you were like, okay, it's up to me, I'm going to do it? Uh, you know, it's a good question. Um, this is like junior high, high school. I was senior patrol leader, which is like, you know, the kid who has the most responsibility, um, in the boy scouting world mm-hmm. for a long time. Like, normally you do that for like a year or something. And I did it for like five. Mm-hmm. And. <laughs> There's no term limits, apparently. <laughs> no term limits. You're not really voted. I don't. <laughs> but yeah, so I was just in charge, kind of. And so we did a lot less like authoritarian military practice, um, which is kind of what Boy mm-hmm. Scouts lends itself towards. And we're a lot less worried about. Yeah. Yeah. Wearing uniforms like. Yeah. All that stuff. That was that was my least favorite part. Like when I was in it, I hated wearing a uniform, but but yeah, like there was there was also cool stuff. Like you got to go camping and and do adventurous stuff. Exactly. So yeah, we like didn't really force much uniform wearing and weren't very concerned about it and did lots of mm-hmm. like um rock climbing and rappelling and backpacking, rafting, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And 
uh, we actually like modified the uniform to be a little more fun. And our, our, uh, our official shirts and neckerchiefs were tie dyed. And I kind of, (laughs) cool. we, we would always get in trouble at camp for wearing sandals. They were like, yeah, (laughs) they're like scruffy outlaw Boy Scout troop. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you get into cycling and particularly long distance cycling? Um, it's kind of tied to the Boy Scouts. I was always into bikes because it's a human powered mode of transport. And I, even, you know, back then in like middle school or whatever, felt like we, uh, especially in the U.S. where I'm from, overuse the automobile, especially like as a personal form of transportation, like just one person driving these huge things around. And, uh, yeah. I was interested in like less insane modes of transport. So I did a lot of walking and hitchhiking <laughs> yeah. as a kid. You know, it's interesting growing up in a super rural area where most people are like getting their learner's permit at 14 because you can, if you live in a rural area and like mm-hmm. driving mm-hmm. is like this great freedom, you know, like, Oh, I can do my own thing now. Yeah. That's like basically all of my peers experience. And, for whatever reason, I didn't feel that way about it. I never felt all that constrained. I would just walk somewhere, even if it took, if it took me three or four hours. <laughs> That's true. You don't need a license to walk or to ride a bike. Exactly. And so I would get, so that's how I started dabbling in bikes, but I didn't really have a bike that was any good. You know, like you can ride any bike, you can ride really far in any bike, but there's like levels of quality and setup and stuff that make a bike a lot better or conducive to that and so mm-hmm. the reason i walked mostly is that i had like uh just a, a single speed coaster brake not bmx but like kind of cruisery thing for most of my childhood and it just mm-hmm. wasn't conducive to riding like in the mountains <laughs> where i lived and, but right somewhere in there a friend of the family gave me like a hand-me-down real mountain bike i mean it was you know rigid and whatnot um because mm-hmm. this was, you know, in the in the early in early eighties, sometime so, um, or early nineties, I don't know, somewhere in there. And I started riding that more, and I guess that coincided with my Boy Scout era, and decided to do the like okay. Boy the uh, like bicycling merit badge, because you know how mm-hmm. Boy Scouts work; they want you to do these different activities and prove your competency in them, and you, you cl- kind of collect those and. Right turns into like rank advancement or whatever and i am an eagle scout which is like the highest mm-hmm. rank you can get in boy scouts so you have to do a bunch of different things um yeah which i think is like the idea of it's cool like expose yourself to different stuff you know cooking bicycling mm-hmm. yeah. orienteering whatever it is the way they do it i i don't love especially from my lens as like an educator but anyway that's beside the point mm. i uh <laughs> it's just it's just a little too rigid but I guess Boy Scouts is kind of a rigid organization. Yeah. Well, it has changed at least, right? Like yeah. while we're on the topic of it, I mean, yeah, they've opened it up to more people. And they have. Yeah. So it is, it is cool to see that it can evolve. I know. I, I'm curious. I, I don't have kids and I'm not really around any kids of that age, but I, I would be curious to talk to folks who are doing that now and see how different that experience is and what, how much it has, has and hasn't changed. And the final for that is uh, you can choose to do like a hundred mile bike ride in 
one or two days and decided to do it in two days. And I made like bicycle panniers for, for myself and several other people to be able to do it with me, um, out of like scavenged sailcloth. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it turned out to be kind of the route I chose turned out to be really hilly and kind of an epic. It rained, all that kind of stuff. And I think everyone else who did it was turned off by the experience to some extent. And I was like, yeah, this is my thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, in, in high school, I did a little, um, bike tour around Hawaii, um, with friends. It was his idea to go to Hawaii and the route and stuff. But, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the only bike tour he's ever done. <laughs> but, uh, that was my first, you know, time doing it in a place I didn't know and the like exploratory aspect of it. Um, riding on black sand beaches and, you know, meeting interesting people and that, you know, just added a different layer to it for me, like the exploratory, uh, improvisatory nature of bike touring, especially long distance bike touring. I mean, that was only a week trip, but, you know, it was enough to see what it can be. Yeah. Yeah. So I promise we're going to get to talking about riding the spine, (laughs) but I have one more question because I feel like all of this like sort of just leads up to this trip and like the how and the why and all of that. But I read that you lived in a tree house for four years. Yeah. And on the one hand, I'm thinking, why not? I mean, that would be awesome. But I'm also wondering, like, how does that even work? Oh, yeah. Um, So I went to school for six years in Santa Cruz, UCSC. And uh, Mm -hmm. Santa Cruz is like, it's a beach town, but it's forest right up to the beach. It's like a little bit unusual in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this big redwood forest that overlooks the coast. And uh, the school itself is like up the hill from the town and the ocean in that redwood forest. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually chose the school 100% because of that. I went and like looked at different schools and it was the only one that I felt like, Hey, I could stand to be here for four or five years or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And that's because of the forest, um, which is incredible. And the school is kind of like scattered through these meadow and redwood forests. So you like literally walk trails mm-hmm. between the different buildings to your classes and all. And mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, they push you, they want you to live in the dorms first year. And I did that. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, it's really expensive to live in this town and I'm paying my own way through school and I got to figure out a better line for that. Cause I don't really want to go into debt. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's this, there's a lot of lore in Santa Cruz about people living in tree houses and there are like tree houses around, um, various like fallen apart mm-hmm. ones out in the woods and Jacob and I actually Jacob riding the spine we were roommates in college um that's kind of an interesting story in itself but in any case we decided to build treehouse and uh so we did we went out we built a treehouse um immediately got busted uh we chose a bad spot <laughs> we never even <laughs> slept in it and uh oh man tore it down and moved into somebody's backyard for a few months in a t- in the sa- in a tent, <laughs> but um, while well, we worked on a new treehouse, oh, and we chose better the second time, built the treehouse, lived in it for the next four four something years. Wow! Like, how big is this thing? Was it was it like insulated? Like, how how elaborate was it? 
Oh yeah. So all the tree houses I built, I ended up building about five in Santa Cruz. Um, were like really simple platforms hmm. suspended or supported in redwood trees because you know redwood trees being tall columnar conifers don't have branches you can use for, for support so everything has to be um hmm. either like hanging on cables or like have these cantilevered supports attached to the trunk mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so they were all like pretty simple platforms and uh with some kind of uh tent on them basically like the one we lived in the most uh was was a uh army mess tent which is like a two-story tent or half of its two stories and yeah super weird tent i i don't remember how i discovered them but i was like oh that's obviously the right one because we can have like a sleeping loft in that zone (laughs) uh and yeah so but yeah so it's a platform with an army tent on it and then the, the third tree house I built for myself was a little more elaborate. Uh, it was two geodesic domes, uh, each on its own octagonal platform, each around a separate fork of a forked redwood tree. And uh, that one was about 120 feet in the air. The other ones were, were lower. Oh, wow. Yeah, the one that I lived in for the longest was probably only like 20 feet off the ground. And yeah, it did eventually get found and we had to take it down. And that's why I built another one. And the reason we chose to <laughs> like go so high was to hopefully avoid detection. You know, we are always very careful about our trails and um, maintaining them to like be invisible. Mm-hmm. It turned out that it's better to take one trail very carefully and then intentionally keep it maintained than to try and take different routes because you end up just, if you're living somewhere, you end up just like trampling a whole area of the forest and making it really clear that somebody goes there a lot. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Unfortunately, the the last one got discovered by a, um, a fire department helicopter doing a controlled burn in a state park nearby or city park, whatever it is. And uh, they told the UCSC police whose land it was on, and blah blah blah. Anyway, one of them decided to use his <laughs> three day weekend to find us um, off the clock. Uh, has kind of oh a vendetta goodness. against tree houses for some reason. Anyway, they did. And, uh, yeah, I was actually out of the country, at, or not out of the country, out of state at that time, riding freight trains around. And so I came home to my house and all my belongings being gone, which was kind of a bummer, but made it a little easier to leave for four years. So, <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you lived in a tree house since? Like, what's, what's your current? living situation i don't currently live in a treehouse uh i have built a number of tree houses since i actually that's kind of what i do for a living or it's like part of what i do um oh cool mm-hmm. i am i'm a builder uh i you know if i could only build exotic tree houses i probably would but i also only want to work for uh clients that i like and so i don't like seek out those jobs um because there's a yeah, it's a difficult thing designing a treehouse that doesn't damage a tree but meets the um, client's expectations of grandeur and mm-hmm. fun and so on. And you know, you just kind of have to have the right trees. But uh, yeah, I, I built five tree houses in Nicaragua for this uh, resort, the permaculture resort or something along those lines. That's how they fill it anyway. Mm-hmm. In San Juan del Sur, which is a Pacific surf town. Um, 
and okay. but it's all like centered around tree houses I built at this point, and I built a really fancy apartment and a tree in California for the same guy who is involved with that project, which unfortunately burned a couple of years ago. But yeah, so I um, I build tree houses, but I haven't built one for myself yet. I do um, have a piece of property I bought with a sweetheart in uh, Santa Cruz or nearby, near Santa Cruz, um, with the intention of building there, but mm-hmm. I've run into neighbor-inspired red tape issues and haven't been able to do it. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay, so let's talk about riding the spine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How did the idea for this trip come about, and who was part of that group? Yeah, so the idea started kind of after a little tour I talked about in Hawaii in high school. Mm-hmm. My other best friend at the time didn't go on that trip, but was inspired by it and by was getting into mountain biking at the same time. And uh, he read about the um, Great Divide Trail, which was relatively new at that point. I don't think it was even like yeah, quite finished, definitely not in the state that it is today. And he was like, man, we really should do that. Like, that sounds super cool. And I was completely agreed, obviously. And uh, so he was like, <laughs> cool, well, let's do it. Like once we graduate, because we were like seniors in high school at this point. And like, yeah, once we do it, once we graduate, let's, let's do it. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, you know, went to college instead or something. I mean, not that it, it's only like two or three months, so we could have done it in between, but he wasn't actually into it, I think, or as into it as he wanted to dream about it, not actually do it maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that's where most of us are. Yeah. Most of us see that and we're like, yeah one day but really we're not going to do it yeah or you know yeah on that note that's such a great like entry to bike packing or whatever you want to call it um i highly recommend it to anyone who's listening like it's not as hard as you imagine it might be like it's such a good route to Mm -hmm. check out this kind of travel because it's like really it's super well mapped out the riding is not technical and uh there's support you know, like towns and bike shops and like you can bail out to the road like all the time. So it's like as safe Mm. as like really epic riding in the mountains can be. So you should do it or just like even a section of it. Like just go, don't, don't think you need like the right bike or to prepare a whole bunch or whatever. (laughs) Just like go check it out anyway. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to, I mean, the, I'm glad you qualified that because yeah, I mean, I think like, for most people, maybe a weekend, do like a section or something would be a good place to start. Yeah, exactly. That's the perfect place to start. But yeah. Could be, and you really can do that on that route, you know, choose a zone, do, mm-hmm. do a weekend, yeah. do a week if you can pull it off, you know, like it's, it's great for that. Yeah. But anyway, so I went to college instead of riding or yeah, leaving to do that trip and, uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. But while I was in college, um, I met Jacob, who uh, ended up being a large part of Riding the Spine as well. Um, definitely my best friend, still a very good mm-hmm. friend. And we lived in the dorm together and then like treehouse together for the next like five something years. And then we went bicycle riding together for another four years or so. So I told him about this idea about the Great Divide Trail. And he was like, yeah, awesome. Let's do it. But while we like waited to do it, 
for whatever reason, while we were focusing on school and stuff, um, the idea got bigger because we were like, well, if, if they could put together, you know, dirt route through the mountains across the U.S., like, why wouldn't you start like in Canada? Um, you know, Canada's got that for sure. All of those mountains. <laughs> yeah. And then like, well, if you're going to start Canada, like go all the way, go up to Alaska, good excuse to check that <laughs> part out. And then, you know, so on and so forth. Like why stop at these borders? They're pretty, they're mm. artificial. You know, the mountains go the whole way. Right. And, or, yeah. you know, it's like the longest, it's not quite continuous, but it's really close to the long continuous. And it's certainly the longest mountain chain in the world. If you follow it the way we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, because, yeah, there's just these crazy mountains all along the Pacific coast, basically. In any case, um, so yeah, we were like, hey, let's, let's ride those mountains the whole way. And, uh, yeah, so, and this time my, my friend was actually into it. Jacob was as inspired about the whole thing as I was. <laughs> uh, and so, so we actually did it. <laughs> yeah. And kind of just before we left, uh, really close to leaving. Like we'd thrown it out there to all of our friends, like, Hey, come do this. And none of our close friends were like, yeah, we should do that. And I was kind of like, you guys are crazy. Like that, that sounds really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, yeah. uh, friend. And would take a really long time. I mean, that's a commitment, right? A big like, commitment. Was the idea always to do it like start to finish? Yeah. Or did you think maybe we'll do like, you know, a little bit, take some time off and no, it was, it was, it was to do it start to finish. Um, we didn't think it would take quite as long as it did. You know, we did our marginal amount of research about people riding the Panamericana, which is, you know, the highway route that is also like pretty much continuous, like highway one of in California, Oregon, whatever goes all the way. It changes names a few times, but there's like a coastal highway that you can connect together. And and people who do that do it in about a year and a half at like a reasonable pace. I think the record last time okay. I checked was eight months or something. But um, oh, wow. that doesn't sound like fun to me, but teach their own. <laughs> like ride, riding the highway in many of those places is probably great. Um, but in a lot of places, it kind of sucks too. Because, you know, it's a main road and mm-hmm. there's no shoulder and all of that. It's not the kind of touring I like to do. But anyway, that was a number we had in our head, like about two years. Okay. We didn't really reckon for how much harder and how much slower uh, mountain touring is. We should have, but, you know, we'd never tried it before. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like year and a half. We'll just add six months for, because we're off road. Yeah, exactly. While we were gearing up for this trip, there's there's a lot of gear to create or figure out, try to decide what the right thing to ride in this kind of like unknown way was like we hadn't really heard of anybody else yeah. doing touring like this. And, you know, the American cycling association is responsible for the great divide. You know, they were at that point and they probably still are recommending that you ride that trail on a full suspension bike with a Bob trailer, which is such a nightmare of a way to tour in my opinion. Oh, jeez, <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And totally unsuited for that route. Like there's absolutely no need for, all of that Mm. on that route, especially in my opinion. But anyway, I saw that and was like, well, we're definitely not doing that. So what are we going to do? So we had the whole process of, you know, gear planning, figuring out. Fortunately, I spent a very large percentage of my childhood backpacking 
internationally traveling, doing like adventurous things. So it wasn't like a stretch to figure out what to bring and all that. Mm-hmm. It's mostly trying to figure out the bike gear that was relatively new, kind of like a scrappy make it work kind of person, build it out of trash. And so Mm -hmm. it was a departure for me to buy new bike parts and think about the right part for circumstance and because of longevity and everything else and not just try and find something at the local bike co-op or pull it out of the garbage. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I'd say I did pretty well with that. Our bikes all survived. Well, the bikes I designed and built up lasted quite well it up to what we were up to are the third person who did yeah so when you say you built you built the bikes like these are you you built a frame i mean did you start you started with tubing and like built up your own frame for it so some i i designed a bike and my friend who was building bikes at the time his name was traffic cycles he've this was in the like height of the fixed gear boom when there was also a boom in small hand builders. He was one of those and he was building six year bikes. And, but I was like, Hey, you're a bike builder. Build me this bike. That's really nothing like that. And, uh, he did. <laughs> and that, that frame worked well. I still have it. We designed them to, um, work with extra cycle, uh, like long tail frame extensions to carry gear. Oh, yeah. Uh, so my bike, you know, is designed in my mind to work well with one of those and be specific to it. So it like doesn't have rear brakes, for instance, okay. and uh, such like, um, because the brakes are located with the wheel on the extra cycle. And, mm-hmm. uh, but then I was the only one of the three of us who wanted to like build an entirely custom bike for myself. And so the other guys rode other bikes. We eventually settled on Surly Instigators as our like base frame with the um, extra cycle on the back. Okay. But, uh, my friend Sean, um, who was the third person who did the whole trip with us, who we didn't really know before the trip. Uh, he was a friend of my brother's more like I, we knew him, you know, like an acquaintance. He was at parties or whatever. He was more a friend of my brother's than mine or Jacob's. Mm-hmm. And he was the only person who took our uh, invitation to join. And mm-hmm. it was very last minute. And uh, we actually, when I arrived in Alaska, I wasn't totally sure whether he was going to show up or not. Mostly because I didn't know him, but also because we like flew at different times and so on. Yeah. But he was he was reticent to listen to my advice about bike parts, and uh, mm-hmm. so his bike was not set up the way I would have done it, and he had significantly more failures of significant parts. So I felt vindicated that I was mm. choosing my design sense was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did it evolve? Like, did your bikes, yours, and and everybody's kind of evolve? Yeah, um, mine evolved a lot. Obviously, my mind is kind of technical and gear design oriented, and so I I'm constantly thinking about that kind of stuff. The other guys' bikes didn't evolve as much, but uh, they did. I mean, for instance, Sean's bike, we just had to build him an entirely new bike because first he he broke his fork in the first week of the trip. He broke his frame about a year in. Um, he broke his seat post whatever anyway just like massive massive catastrophic <laughs> failures and so eventually he he ended up on a big dummy which is you know the surly with the built-in extra cycle mm-hmm. which at that point yeah. was pre-production because oh, cool. at that point i established a relationship with surly but that was about a year year and a half into the trip yeah he replaced his really broken 
cobbled together bike with big dummy that he then let me spec the parts for and build up. And then that trip, that bike <laughs> lasted the rest of the trip for him with like no major failures, which is pretty good. And I switched about that same time to a fat bike, which at that point weren't really on the market either. Like that was when, the, uh, you know, the Surly Pugsley was in pre-production. I think they were ready to go in production and they were like hyping it basically. You know, there was this guy, I think his name was Jacob, mm-hmm. uh, who rode one with a special trailer across Australian desert, the canning stock route. Mm. Be like, you can actually do this with this bike. Like, think of, you know, the things you could do if you had one. I think it's the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I heard about that trip when we were in the Rocky Mountains in the winter, pushing our bikes through the snow a whole lot. We'd, we'd switch to downhill tires because they were the only, like, wide knobby tires we could get at the time. Like, tire science has really, designs have changed a lot since then. So we were riding these, like, pretty crappy Chinese semi-slicks most of the time because um, they were the only like small tread tires you could get um, like touring bikepacking tires just didn't exist and then uh, we got the winter hit us in Montana or it hit us in really in Canada but hit us hard in Montana and Wyoming and suddenly we were like camping in snow biking in snow and it was like minus 12 minus 15 at the worst and uh our bikes just weren't really equipped for snow. So we tried, we tried these, uh, yeah. downhill tires and that really didn't work. They were just, they just clogged up with snow and were heavy when we weren't on the snow. But while we were going through that mm-hmm. adventure trying to figure out how to bike in the snow, I was reading about this guy riding in the sand on Pugsley and I was like, dude, those are the bikes we need, like fat tires. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So Jacob contacted Surly. And they were like, well, yeah, we'd totally give you one Pugsley. And they're like, but there's, there's three of us. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we have one to give. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> at that time, Surly and their parent company, QBP, were much smaller. And they were taking a huge leap of faith gamble on the fat bike thing. Like, because they had developed mm-hmm. so much like proprietary stuff to make that happen. So it was like a huge gamble on their part. So I being a little bit in the bike industry now, I totally understand why they didn't have a bike to give me. <laughs> but uh at that time we were kinda like, dude, why are you why are you <laughs> yeah. so stingy? What the fuck? But uh Yeah. We're freezing here in <laughs> yeah, Wyoming. Right? I mean that that's crazy in and of itself though that that you guys were out there and so dedicated Maybe stubborn is the word to just be like, we're doing this. We're not stopping. Like, yeah. I mean, because you had to know too, I guess that seasons don't matter. Like there's no way to time that trip so that like, you know, you're in the good places at the, the nice time of year. That's it. When you take a trip that long, it's impossible. It's, it's impossible to plan how long things are going to, any part of it's going to take but it's truly impossible to like make mm-hmm. such a long trip line up with the seasons. You know, we tried a little bit, like we left, we left in early summer from Alaska because we were like, this is the long, going to be the longest, you know, like amount of time that is nice in the North. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I say, we got snow while we were still in Canada in September or something like that. And then mm-hmm. it hit us really hard by the time it was actual winter. And we were, of course, in the Rockies at that point. So serious elevation, serious weather. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't recall ever thinking that like we should stop though. Um, <laughs> which I guess maybe seems a little odd <laughs> hindsight, but um, yeah, we were just that into it, or at least I was. Jacob too, I think. Sean, Sean had like serious misgivings the whole time, which is hard for me to understand. For four years. Yeah, and it, and I mean, no, I don't want to like throw shade on him at all because he did this totally amazing trip with us and um, finished it together. And that's yeah, sweet, made it. super cool. And he also seemed to have like misgivings about it and different like vision of the trip the whole time. So he really mm-hmm. suffered and struggled <laughs> more, I think um, just because of the like mental yeah. mismatch yeah. with the trip and then the conditions, you know, like mm-hmm. for whatever reason he couldn't, I was better at snow biking than the other two guys. And Sean was the least good at snow biking. And so mm-hmm. like one particularly memorable day where actually almost died of frostbite and hypothermia, he, oh, wow. he ended up like three hours behind me because his brakes stopped working. Um, like they froze up and he couldn't get them unfrozen. And so he was just walking and crashing in the snow in the mountains by himself for the whole day (laughs) and uh i of course didn't realize that stuff and i was ahead i maybe it's because i grew up skiing and i was like i was i felt like i was skiing my bike um because i couldn't like Mm -hmm. control it in the normal fashion but i was doing that and i was having a good time and so i got way ahead of both him and jacob and so when it was like around time to stop i stopped uh you know let them catch up but I didn't assume they were like way behind because I'd been having a good day. And so I didn't mm-hmm. take proper yeah. uh, precautions with like layers and changing my clothes and stuff. And then um, mm-hmm. it got dark suddenly as it does in the winter, especially higher latitudes. And um, all of a sudden I was too cold. My core temperature dropped and I never got it back up. Um, I ended up like say um, oh, wow. we built a big bonfire and I realized while I was sitting at the bonfire that I had hypothermia. Um, and because of that, I could barely talk because that's one of the symptoms and mm-hmm. like communicate that to those guys. And anyway, my life was saved by um, water bladders, you know, like camelbacks full of hot water in my sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I went to bed with, with uh-huh. all of my clothes on and uh, put one of those uh, that they boiled up for me which took forever because it was so cold mm-hmm. in the foot of my sleeping bag and that's what got my like temperature back up but i still suffer pretty severe frostbite on my feet because uh i don't know if you've noticed from your perusal of the riding the spine but i don't wear shoes and um i wasn't wearing shoes <coughs> <laughs> i missed that missed that detail okay mm. yeah so i'm I, no, no shoes. shoes so sandals uh, no no sandals uh, barefoot, um, like barefoot on the pedals. Yeah. I have special pedals, um, that I designed while I was in college when I got into fixed gear bikes, um, as everyone did in that, you know, early two thousands era, it was just a <laughs> mm-hmm. done thing. I built a fixed gear mountain bike, which was not a done thing, I guess, but you know, on a fixed gear bike, you really need your feet attached to the pedals. I mean, there are, of course, people who ride like BMX or downhill or flats and can control their bike that way, but I've never had pedal control like that. And uh, 
for braking and skipping and all the things you do on a fixed gear bike, especially if you're mountain biking it. I felt like mm-hmm. I really needed my feet clipped in, as it were, but I didn't want to wear shoes. Mm-hmm. So I ended up um, cutting down some flip-flops that I got at the uh, flea market and bolting them to some pedals. And okay, it worked great. And uh, that's what I ride on all of my bikes to this day. Um, so it's like just the strap portion of some flip-flops. And I'm guessing no sock either. I mean, yeah. if this is a flip-flop, there's no sock. There's no sock. Well, in this like super cold winter time that I was talking about, um, I was wearing these like neoprene socks that are for like, uh, they sell them to go in ski boots or like, um, for rafting, but not like thick ones like you wear for surfing, not booties, but like a sock, but you know, made out of neoprene, so rubber. I was wearing those and I like cut out a toe slot so that I could wear them while I was biking. Um, especially for the wind chill, really. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But that kind of defeats the purpose. They're not waterproof or like windproof anymore if you have to cut a cut a slot in them. Oh, well, I sewed the slot back up. They're not really waterproof. Oh, okay. Yeah, I made them, I don't know if you're familiar with like Japanese tabi, like the shoe, martial artist shoes or the Japanese carpenter shoes that have like mm. a split toe, articulated toe or whatever. It's, it's like that. So that um, the, but the socks were sewed up there. It's like a lobster yeah, claw. exactly. But for your feet. Foot lobster claw. That's exactly what it was. Okay. And, you know, neoprene <laughs> isn't waterproof. It actually works in the rafting world, at least, by getting water. And same as a wetsuit. You get, like, water inside it, yeah. and it holds that little layer inside that actually acts as the warming and insulation. Okay. So the, like, sewn toe thing didn't really change that and. You know, the wind chill definitely worked for that. The real problem came when I um, wore the bottom of them out from walking on ice and rocks and stuff. And uh, mm. that's where I got my frostbite yeah. was through through those holes in my neoprene socks. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I got, yeah, pretty serious frostbite. <laughs> uh, you know, they have a rating system kind of like uh, burns do. And second degree frostbite, which is what I had, fortunately, is you can you can grow the skin back. It isn't like permanent loss, flesh loss and gangrene, which is what third degree frostbite is. Um, mm-hmm. So I, okay. I did get that skin flesh back on my feet. But in the meantime, frostbite is your blood literally freezing and you know, we're mostly water. As you know, when water freezes, it expands. So what happens is your blood freezes, mm-hmm. it expands, turns into and bursts all of your blood vessels and capillaries and cells. You know, your cells are mostly water. Yeah. And then those little ice chunks are still trying to be circulated by your body, trying to pump blood. So they're less like mm-hmm. billions of little knives cruising around shredding everything that's left so it's yeah pretty excruciating at least once it unfreezes and then you end up with these they're kind of like blisters huge huge blisters of shredded dead flesh (laughs) and i had those all over my uh the bottoms of my feet painting a real picture yeah really really pleasant i recommend it highly and uh yeah so but we were in the middle of nowhere i you know just 
barely survived through hypothermia <laughs> and we had to bike out. Mm-hmm. Um, the other guys obviously had a rough cold night too. I mean, it was minus 15 and we're snow camping and, uh, yeah, we're like, we need to get out. I mean, we need to get out. <laughs> There's no two ways about it, but we were pretty, still pretty far from a, a road and yeah. no one knew we were there and blah, blah, blah. So I had to like, but I couldn't even get my feet like into my pedals. And if I had, you know, I couldn't have pedaled on these giant blister things. So I had to like drain them all, mm-hmm. which was pr- pretty excruciating in and of itself. And then I had to ride on that like kind of <laughs> raw flesh. <laughs> but oh, uh, wow. we did make it out, obviously. Oh my goodness. On a loaded bike too. I mean, this isn't like you just hop on your like cruiser bike. Oh yeah. Like, Our bikes know. are really heavy. Yeah. Terrain and heavy bike and yeah. Yeah, we were carrying like really a lot of gear because, you know, we had to have four season gear and camping gear was better then than it had been, you know, for the previous generation of bike adventurers in the 70s, but nothing like it is now. And so we were carrying, my bike weighed somewhere around 120 pounds, sometimes a little more. Uh, depending on how much water we were trying to carry. Mm. So yeah, really heavy bike and in the snow um, on a bike that really isn't dialed for the snow. Yeah, some pretty pretty rough riding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we made we made it out and we you know took a little little rest time in some random town, Colorado or somewhere in there. And uh, I bought some like winter cycling boots from through a bike shop. Like they didn't carry them maybe, and I had to talk them into special ordering them for me or something. I don't remember, but mm-hmm. I wore some like lake winter cycling boots for the next month or so to uh, let my feet recover mm. because I had to heal all that. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 My goodness. So another thing that I remember hearing about um, at the time was that you guys got into trouble for riding bikes through the Grand Canyon? Is that right? Like, what what went down with that? Oh, yeah. That is right. Yeah, so that came almost immediately next in, in the story, really, after me at the serious frostbite <laughs> and all. Um, yeah. Because, well, we got bumped off the Great Divide Trail um, because of winter. Um, we kind of called being able to ride the rest of the Great Divide in the winter after that mm-hmm. section um, because it only got steeper and snowier. We were just getting into Colorado, um, which is of course the highest elevation, most technical part of that whole trail. Mm-hmm. So we rode uh Cocopelli trail, which is from like Grand Junction, Colorado to Moab, Utah, something like that, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a super cool trail. Um, it really, it was, it was the hardest, mountain biking we'd done on the trip that thus far um so that was a little bit eye-opening because you know even though the snows is difficult and all the great divide trail isn't technical mountain biking like 90 95 percent of it is not mm-hmm. technical mountain biking and the sections that are are short and you can just mm-hmm. walk them if you want to yeah the cocopelli trail is like you know full-on technical desert mountain biking the whole time like non-stop and uh mm-hmm. most people who ride it don't really carry gear even today there's like these hut systems or people that will like shuttle gear for you so that you know you carry some like mm-hmm. emergency gear and some water or whatever but 
but you're not carrying four season gear. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, yeah. We did that trail, which again, super cool, highly recommended, and ended up in Arizona, and uh, decided to ride the Arizona Trail, which was like pretty much brand new at that point, and mm-hmm. it goes north to south to Arizona, and therefore crosses the Grand Canyon because the Grand Canyon runs east-west across Arizona. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, because, because it exists. It's, uh, it's there. Yeah, no yeah, one around it. And there's only one spot like that you can cross the Grand Canyon on a trail without like swimming or a boat or something. And that's mm-hmm. that's right in the, the Grand Canyon Park uh, and Phantom Ranch, um, Bright Angel Trail. There's a, there's a bridge across the river. And, um, okay. you know, that if, if you've ever gone hiking in the Grand Canyon, like that's where you went. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you were at the South Rim most likely. And that's where that trail starts. And so it's like the most visited and used part of the Grand Canyon. And, uh, in my opinion, that's why you're not allowed to bike on the trail. And it's pretty reasonable. Like if you tried to bike on that trail in the middle of summer, when there's like, literally thousands of tourists on the trail a day and mule trains, it would be a total disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the trail is really, really narrow, really steep. And, uh, yeah, definitely not like Imba approved or whatever. In any case, <laughs> we, uh, we were there in the winter and we had to ride something like 30 miles of snow on a closed road to get to the trail at all. Um, on the north rim that's the like less visited mm-hmm. side and they just kind of close it in the winter at least they did back then it's it's higher too more snow mm-hmm. yeah. and then yeah we we biked that trail rode in and then you know we knew we weren't supposed to bike there so when we got to the bottom where phantom ranch is where there are like year-round rangers we like packed our bikes up um, because, you know, people who are riding the Arizona Trail to this day are supposed to carry their carry their bikes through, which is mm-hmm. pretty wild, in my opinion. They, they, like, don't even want your wheels to touch the ground. Right. I mean, don't you have to, like, disassemble your – like, you can't just, you know, yeah. put, throw the bike over your shoulder. You have to take the wheels off. Well, you could. I, I think technically if you wanted to throw it over your shoulder and hike for literally two days – on really steep terrain. I don't think anyone would stop <laughs> yeah. you, but the practicality of it is that if you're going to carry your bike there, okay. you have to put it on your back somehow. You need some kind of pack. And we actually, I mean, we knew that. We knew there was no way we were going to be able to ride out of the Grand Canyon, um, especially because we rode in on the gentler trail. And the mm-hmm. Bright Angel Trail, which is the one on the south rim, is just crazy steep. Like, there's absolutely no way you could ride a bike up it okay. in like just no matter what it's too steep and too loose short to short switchbacks are too sharp like i mean maybe danny mccaskill on an e-bike could ride it or something but like you know it's just not really rideable (laughs) so we knew we were gonna have to carry our bikes out and we also remember our bikes are long tails um and we're carrying a ton of gear so we knew that we had to like have some way to get them on our backs or whatever and uh so we actually bought frame like old school backpacking backpacks uh, at a thrift store in Arizona mm-hmm. and then took the bag part off of those. So we just had the frames 
And so mm-hmm. we were carrying those yeah. like strapped to the top of our long tailed decks so that we could then strap our frames and gear to those and have a like relatively comfortable and supported way to carry our gear out. So when we got to the bottom in Phantom Ranch, we did that. We, um, we stashed our gear, our gear just behind a rock somewhere. And because we were also like, there's no way we're going to be able to hike out right now. And we don't have permits to camp down here. So we need to leave today. There's no way we're going to be able to hike out with 120 pound packs after like biking in this super difficult trail in the winter <laughs> up hike up this super difficult trail that people like literally yeah. die on every year because they aren't up for it. <laughs> That's mostly from heat exhaustion yeah. and heart attacks and stuff. Obviously we were in really good shape, but anyway, we stashed our gear, we strapped our bikes to these, to our backpack frames and we hiked out. Um, we made it a little after dark to the South rim and we're like, okay, well, now what do we do? All our gears at the bottom. So we uh, stayed in an unfortunately expensive hotel because we didn't really have any other options there. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, because it was the winter, the hotel had room because it had been the summer that it's booked out forever. So yeah, we spent the night in the hotel and hiked back down with just our empty backpack frames in the morning, which I think must have been a pretty funny sight for the few people that were also out hiking because <laughs> we were literally like running down that trail mm-hmm. with just backpack frames and water bottles and (laughs) everyone else was like it was a pretty serious endeavor what they were up to so i think we must have been pretty perplexing anyway we yeah got to the bottom there strapped the rest of our gear under backpack frames hiked out and uh went our merry way we were like well that's cool you know we we did see that one ranger in the bottom but uh we were carrying our bikes by then and they didn't seem too interested or concerned and Great. Right. And we rode the Grand Canyon. That was super cool. Yeah. And uh, about, about a month and a half later, uh, we were in Tucson. Is that right? No, we were even further south. We were like almost at the border. We went to this 24 hours of old Pueblo bike race. Mm-hmm. And mostly because we'd met folks in Arizona on the way down who were going to be there. And we're like, hey, you should come hang out, maybe even race with us or whatever. And we were like, okay, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so we yeah. were at this 24 hour race and we were cruising around talking to people about being on their teams or whatever, you know, because there's lots of different categories. And the one that most people race in is sort of an unlimited number of people on the team, but they like, you take turns. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking for one of those that, you know, wasn't like a seriously competitive team that were willing to let us randoms on there. And while we were doing that, this, uh, young couple approaches us with like cameras and like press badges or whatever. And they're like, Hey, we're, um, you know, freelance reporters. We're doing looking for story, you know, we're checking out this bike race thing, 24 hour racing. It's kind of weird. You guys look interesting. Like we've never seen bikes like that before. What are you up to? Can we like do an interview or whatever? And so Sean had the right instinct. He said no, which surprised me because usually he was more of the, uh, Hmm more outgoing he like liked the publicity but jacob and i were like yeah sure whatever you know we always did interviews we had tons of interviews with random small town places you know like part of being on the road like that is you just talk to everybody it's just the deal mm-hmm. so they said we said yeah sure whatever and uh they grouped us together took a photograph and then pulled out their um homeland security badges and started reading us our rights and uh <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> so they, it turns out that um, the newly developed um, Homeland Security Agency had spent a month and a half and seems to be like a lot of wasted resources on hacking our email and tracking <laughs> us um, to uh, punish us oh for our gosh. egregious crime of bicycling in the Grand Canyon. And um, yeah, so they apprehended us uh, just like about a week's ride from Mexico. And so, you know, if we hadn't gone to this bike race, we never would have, you know, gotten in trouble. But yeah, yeah the Park Service, it turns out, was kind of on a kick of processing people for posting illegal activities on the fledgling social media. So right at the same time, Dean Potter, who is a famous free soloist, bass jumper, rock climber, rock star, uh, mm -hmm. got busted for posting on um, MySpace, which was the big <clears throat> social media outlet at the time, that he mm -hmm. free soloed uh, the delicate arch in Arches National Park, which you're not allowed to climb on. And yeah. there were a couple other like reasonably high profile, but not quite as high profile as Dean Potter and us people who were busted in the same way for writing on the internet about mm. doing something illegal in the national parks. So anyway, they, we actually hadn't said that we rode, but we did post like pictures of camping off like in the middle of the trail in the snow in the Grand Canyon and our bikes, of course. Mm -hmm. So yeah, somebody, somebody in the, Park Service Internet Monitoring Division, <laughs> whatever they are, had seen that and uh, <laughs> decided to go after us and enlisted Homeland Security. So they, wow. yeah, seems super wild to me. But in any case, uh, we went back to Flagstaff, went to court, went to jail, paid some really big fines, hmm. pled no contest to a bunch of federal misdemeanors, um, such crimes as hmm. camping in a non-designated area trail use without a permit you know serious stuff like that and uh yeah and uh but yeah they're all federal misdemeanors that are still on record or whatever anyway mm. yeah so we got and that ignited kind of a firestorm of controversy like we were pretty high profile for the time like our blog was getting at the peak something like a million unique visitors a day now, of course, oh my gosh, that could well have been, I mean, that was primitive metrics. So that's like probably counting clicks or something, but we were like well-known <laughs> and, yeah. you know, basically anyone who had interest in the fledgling world of bike touring, bike packing, like knew about us and a ton of people were following our blogs. Mm -hmm. And You were influencers. I mean, that's a term that we, is very common today, but yeah, back then we were still that was kind of like a new thing. It absolutely was. Yeah. Yeah. We were like bleeding edge internet influencers back when people still use blogs and um, it wasn't a thing yet. <laughs> so yeah, we, we were certainly that. And at that point, we, because of that, uh, companies were like willing to give us stuff like Surly really helped us out a lot um, mm -hmm. in a really cool, no strings attached way that I don't know if it's still their MO, but it, we really appreciated it because they didn't tell us to like, you know, mm, like rep yeah. Surly or put Surly anything. They, there was no zero uh, stipulations, just like, Oh, you need gear. Here you go. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah. So anyway, we were, we were high profile and, so we kind of like seriously divided the bike community, especially in that part of the world. Um, 
where there's a lot of like bike trail advocacy going on because there's a lot of wilderness areas where you're not allowed to bike Mm -hmm. and people are like, you should be able to bike here. And so trying to be like models of bike stewardship and all, which is something I totally support and is reasonable. But so those folks were like, shame on you, Mm -hmm. you know, for illegal trail riding basically. Mm. And some of those folks were like, you guys got off too easy with your like insane fines and jail time. Like it should have been worse. And anyway, wow. <laughs> and there was a like yeah. less vocal. I don't know whether it was a majority or minority of people who were like, this is ridiculous. You know, like, sure. Give them a fine. But like you, this is over the top. Like they rode their bikes on a bike on a trail that gets like used by thousands of people a day in the summer. I mean, it's clear they were trying to make an example. Absolutely. Yeah. It's clear. It's clear. They're, they're trying to make an example of you guys. And did you, I mean, did you end up, I feel like I remember you, you guys ended up doing some like PSA type stuff, like writing about like, Oh yeah, we, we were, yeah, we were required to why you shouldn't do that. And yeah, it was really funny actually. So, so the federal court, which means there's no jury and um, just a judge. And the judge seemed more out to get us than the prosecuting attorney did, which was a very odd vibe. Hmm. But uh, he added, so we worked out a plea bargain with the prosecuting attorney because it was clear that we had no case unless we wanted to divide and conquer and throw each other under the bus because Sean was the only person who there was actual (laughs) evidence of doing these actions like as posted on our website. I see. <laughs> but like, obviously we weren't going to do that. Like, and we, you know, could have had separate lawyers and we were like, no, like we did this, whatever we're accused of, whatever we actually did together. We don't need multiple lawyers. We're mm-hmm. not going to like try and get each other in trouble. Like, obviously not. That's just totally. Yeah. That would cost more too. You got to pay three times the lawyers. Oh yeah. It would have been expensive, but also just like morally repugnant. So in any case, we didn't do that. But uh, so there wasn't much that our lawyer who was a mountain biker who was defending us pro bono, which was very kind of him. We actually met him at the bike race in the aftermath of being served this stuff. And uh, but so we worked out a plea bargain because it was clear that that was our only choice. And the only thing we were like really stipulated about our plea bargain was that our probation would allow us to leave the country because probation, federal probation normally does not. Mm. And we were like, there's absolutely no way we're going to agree to any agreement that doesn't let us leave the country because we're going to leave the country in about a week for a long time. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) Man, you guys are so dedicated to this. (laughs) That's that's amazing. So, uh, so yeah, they, um, whatever we worked out, dropped a couple of the charges, pled to these various, crimes that I mentioned earlier, big fines, little jail time, blah, blah, blah. But the while we were like agreeing to that in court, the judge was like, wait, you have to add this. And he added a couple stipulations mm-hmm. uh, because we were influencers. But because it was all so new, he didn't really know how to do it. He was obviously not very tech savvy. And um, yeah. basically they, they gave sort of contradictory requirements, which was we weren't allowed to talk about our alleged crimes in the Grand Canyon for a uh, mm-hmm. period of five years. But we were required mm-hmm. to post about the consequences of our actions in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> we did a thing 
and we got punished for it, but yeah. that's, that's all we can say. Right. And, and we were also required to post a picture of us in front of the courthouse. Okay. So, so we did, but did you have to have handcuffs on and like those prison stripes and, and stuff or we didn't, but what that's, that's a funny story about that too, but we posted this picture. We took a picture, but we posted, like I say, they weren't very tech savvy. We posted like the tiniest pixelated thumbnail as a FU. <laughs> like there's no way you could yeah. tell what this picture is at all. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. it was, it was the picture they required us. And then, you know, we wrote a, um, fairly sarcastic thing about us getting in trouble, mm-hmm. but, uh, and then we turned ourselves in to serve our small amount of jail time. We like went out to eat with our lawyer and we're like, Hey, thanks. I know you couldn't really do anything. That was very nice of you. <laughs> and then we turned ourselves in for this like ridiculous crime. Right. And they immediately put us in manacles, um, leg shackles, hand shackles, waist oh shackles, gosh. and Whoa. and escorted us to jail, federal marshals with machine guns, and us in manacles. <laughs> like, look, we're, we just turned ourselves in for illegal bicycling. Like, wow. what do you think we're going to do? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, not like you yeah, like apprehended wow. us after some crazy manhunt. You know, it's like we just checked ourselves in. Yeah been showing up to court every day yeah we're we're right here yeah so we we went in jail and um the you know federal prison folks who worked there were like they were mad that we were there they're like this is such a waste of our time but they were making light of it and when they were booking us they were like wait you guys bicycled in the grand canyon put them on suicide watch (laughs) 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 and Stuff like wow. that. But anyway, yeah, we did our, our short bit of jail time, mostly with folks from the nearby Navajo reservation, because that, of course, is under federal authority. So even the like smallest infraction mm. on the reservation means you wind up in the federal pen. So oh wow, that's an interesting cultural thing anyway. But, but yeah, and we yeah. got out and um, didn't really have the money to pay the fines that we were obligated to pay but uh we'd met this guy at that same bike race who lived in flagstaff which is where the courthouse and jail and all were who was a um, contractor and he paid our fines and then we worked them off doing um you know built as laborers for him um which was very kind of him oh wow we actually lived at his house while we were working for him and then uh we stayed there for a little while well, I stayed and worked for him because I'm actually a builder, um, and the other guys went other places. Sean went and drove buses in the Grand Canyon, of all places, which is... <laughs> You're allowed to drive buses, but not bicycles. Well, technically, he was not, because one of the stipulations of our probation was to not enter any national parks or lands for five years. <laughs> but oh, wow. obviously, they weren't checking the bus drivers. <laughs> so... He was uh, he was yeah. driving tour buses <laughs> into the Grand Canyon every day while I was doing wow. you know like contractor menial labor, running wires at the top of yeah. lifts and stuff. In any case, we did that for a couple of months to uh, build our savings and then uh, started biking again. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah, so we talked a lot about a couple of I don't know if, I don't know if you would call them low lights, but they're they're certainly kind of negative experiences. Like what? What was your favorite part of the trip? Like what, what stood out as like a highlight? Sure. Well, you know, um, part of the, uh, 
adventure touring venture of any kind is that joking motto is that adventure happens when things go go wrong. If things aren't go, if things are going right, it's mm. not really adventure. Kind of, it's it's a different thing. Um, it's, it's fun. Yeah. It's light. Yeah, you don't it's have not a story. a story really. And so it's of course yeah. easier to talk about the things that went wrong. Those are the exciting, interesting stories. And mm-hmm. as you might guess, I have lots more. But <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, yeah. that's not why you do the trip. It's not to suffer and tell stories later. So some people. Mm-hmm see it that way and i think maybe sean did a little bit at least when he got into the trip he wanted to have a good story to tell and he didn't maybe want to suffer quite Mm -hmm. as much as the good story required but for me for me the (laughs) suffering and the setbacks were always like part and parcel like part of the fun part of what i was signing up for um and so these low lights as you put it weren't weren't i mean yeah they were they were what they were but uh, the trip itself, of course, isn't about those things, and um, it's a different type of exploration, you know, seeing places you've never seen before in a way that potentially no one's ever seen it before. You know, we were riding, mm-hmm. we were following the mountains, but roads don't follow the mountains, even trails don't follow the mountains. So we were trying to link these, like, totally right. unmarked, usually small trails together. And so back and forth across the mountains, um, heading vaguely south. And so we were doing a lot of like really, I mean, being lost was the truth of the matter. But if you don't have somewhere you're trying mm-hmm. to go, you can't really be lost. But we certainly didn't know where we were. And mm-hmm. the ro- the trails and roads we were on weren't generally on any maps of any sort. And people didn't generally know where they went, even the people who lived there, if you asked them beyond, you know, the next little village or whatever, because their worldview didn't, uh, like, accommodate what we were up to. So Mm -hmm. we did a lot of uh, dead reckoning and um, Rochambeau, rock, paper, scissors at intersections. That's how we would root find (laughs) and and, uh, just see what happened. Um, Because of that, we ended up in a lot of, like, very interesting and weird places, Um, met tons of like little slices of rural Latin American life that like you just can't see any other way except being way out in the middle of nowhere. And same goes for, you know, the beauty of nature, incredible things. Like, you know, when we were in Canada, for instance, we switched to riding at night for a while because we could then like watch the Northern lights Mm. while we were biking, even Mm. though, we didn't have bike lights that were up to like actually night biking. And <laughs> the only way you could tell that the Northern lights were happening is like these weird reflections on someone else's helmet. But we learned to figure that out. Cause of course they're silent and you have to look up and while you're biking, especially like on a rough road or whatever, you're not generally looking up. But when we would notice that they were happening, we'd stop and then we'd lay down in the middle of the road and watch the Northern lights for a while. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, experiences like that or being in in Alaska, for instance, camping, you know, with like no one for hundreds, maybe thousands of miles in all directions except us. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having a moose almost step on our tent in the morning or surprising grizzly bear 
like riding single track and having them like run away down the single track in front of us, you know, and the, the trail we were on was only there because it was a grizzly bear trail. It's the only reason we could fit down it, um, with our bikes, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Frozen waterfalls in Utah, Arizona, the desert there, like the desert in the winter is so, especially that part of the world, it's like a pretty unique desert. It's just so stunning mm-hmm. in the winter. It's actually even harder to ride in some ways than it is in the in the summer or shoulder seasons um, because mm-hmm. like the trail where we were where we were riding um, were like washes and um, riverbeds and stuff because there weren't trails exactly mm-hmm. and uh, the routes we were following were like off road four wheel drive type trails and those guys usually follow natural mm-hmm. features because that's where you can, you know, elsewhere, but obstacles are just right. too great. Um, so we were following some of those same routes for the same reason, but because they are washes and riverbeds when there is precipitation and it's that cold, cause it's that cold, it's all frozen. So we were like riding on ice for mm. days at a time, of course, without having the benefit of, of studs or anything and, uh, having heavy bikes that are, yeah, kind of hard to steer like you have to steer them with your body a lot more than you do a a shorter bike or an unloaded bike Mm. so like kind of more like riding a chopper i guess a lot of body english required so yeah pretty pretty tricky technical riding but you're also like riding a river of ice through this barren inhospitable desert with like ice waterfalls around you and as things started to warm up you know the desert comes alive with flowers for these like brief instants and it's such a magical thing Mm. or you know like just just the experience of following a road that say everyone tells you you shouldn't go on or that it doesn't go anywhere but you've looked at a map Mm -hmm. and been like yeah that road doesn't go anywhere it appears to dead it dead ends in a blank spot on the map but there's another trail Mm. not too far away that appears to go that goes to a town and so, and, mm-hmm. you know, if you could find a topo map, which we would, if we could, um, we usually had to go to the <laughs> main city, um, seat of government in the country and go to the military to try to get a map. But, um, and they didn't always want to give you one, but that, that was like the only source for a good map. Um, so usually we didn't have one because that's like halfway through a country or whatever, but <clears throat> when we did have one, we would, um, look at the topo lines and be like, well, there doesn't appear to be a huge cliff there. So I bet we can get through. And so we'd just, we'd ride up, we'd take that road, take that fork where, you know, everyone would say, no, I paso. Oh, that's something we heard a whole lot. There's, there's no way through. And uh, yeah. yeah, it turns out there was where, where there's a will, there's a way or something. And yeah, a little rock climbing with your bike on your back or we did in Central America, we were there in the rainy season and we spent a lot of time crossing active landslides with our bikes which was pretty nerve-wracking but also pretty cool (laughs) (laughs) you know rivers of mud and rock and trying to figure your way around it where we uh made it you know three or four miles in a whole day because we had to like separate our bikes and our gear so many times hike back and forth through various landslide fresh or active landslides um, first with our bike and then with our gear and then leapfrog again um, because our, both our bikes and our gear were so heavy and the 
ground was so treacherous. But, you know, you end up after doing that in this little village and you end up living like we spent the night after one of those particularly memorable ones in like this brand new rammed earth house built the traditional way where you ram the earth with a big ass log and it takes the whole village to build you a house that wasn't quite finished yet Mm. or it was it was finished but not occupied yet you know it's been built for I guess the tradition there was you build a house when somebody gets married and they move into it and so there were we were in somebody's house before they lived in it but you know we stayed there and everybody came to visit you know brought us it would always bring, you know, whatever their surplus was. Usually it was a little bit of milk and some eggs. That's something that people could like spare generally and would bring us as, as a gift, a welcome. Here, you know, all the times that he got invited into people's homes where like people whose poverty is hard for most, for an American anyway, to even comprehend, mm-hmm. just like so happily sharing what they did have without, without any consideration just like so happy to welcome us into their reality and interact in whatever way we could oftentimes without sharing that much language because I speak pretty fluent Spanish at this point and I spoke the best Spanish of the group before we started but it wasn't great and um, but a lot of these people we were interacting with didn't really speak Spanish either because we were so far out of the city educated populated zones um, that people spoke their own mm-hmm. Mayan indigenous dialects um, before they spoke Spanish. And Spanish was always like, mm-hmm. you know, second language, a lingua franca, the language you spoke when you went into town to sell your wares and not really any other time. And so mm-hmm. in a way that's good because it's actually easier to speak in a, in a shared second language than it is to speak a second language mm-hmm. to someone who's it's their first language because you both understand what it's like to not really know how to say something, to grope for words, to like yeah. speak in this kind of like babyish way. And so you're much more forgiving, mm-hmm. used to like piecing things together. And then also you speak slower. So in a way it's easier to communicate, but it's also like quite frustrating. And uh, you add the like yeah. extreme cultural difference of, you know, like, like I say, people who barely been outside of this little village, you know, they've gone to the next town, which seems, which is big to them and very small in the grand scheme of things. And that's it. That's, that's the world they have experienced, you know? And so even trying to explain what we were up to, just like people wouldn't, couldn't comprehend it because they didn't have a picture of how big the world is or where Chile is or anything like that, you know, but mm. If you told them you rode a bicycle from the nearest big town that they had heard of, that was mind blowing, you know, because mm-hmm. who would do that and how and why, right? But yeah. but if you tell them what we were actually up to, it just <laughs> like blank looks. So always, yeah, interesting cultural experience, like trying to communicate both about what we were up to and like what our reality in the States was like. You know, we spent a lot of time being cultural ambassadors of a sort, like trying to correct misconceptions mm. but also yeah give a give a window into that there's a lot of different types of people in the u.s and so what you see on tv isn't like actually normal maybe and that you know for instance mm-hmm. i'm from california but i'm not blonde and i'm not a surfer you know things like that people are just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So many great experiences and yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for 
anybody, I'm sure, to imagine all the things that you and Jacob and Sean experienced and saw and, and learned. Do you have other like bikepacking or cycling adventures in mind for the future? Or is that something that you, you kind of want to leave in the past because, I mean, because you experienced so much, like what else is there? Well, I mean, it's hard. It's a trip to be like hard to top or something or even to match, you know, like it's pretty epic. And especially, for sure. yeah. you know, as far as I know, we were the first people to do it. We're probably still the only people to have done exactly what we've done (laughs) certainly the route but i mean even the like intention of the route which is Mm -hmm. riding off-road primarily following the mountains um from alaska from tip top of alaska to tierra del fuego so you know i'm not like Mm -hmm. and i'm obviously not 20 anymore so i'm like my sights aren't set that grandly but you know but travel in general bike touring in specific is still absolutely my passion my love and uh definitely still doing it Mm. i i'm not a very like future looking person i don't have like big plans per se it's kind of more like when something lines Mm -hmm. up like oh this is the right thing here we go but for instance uh it's been some years now but uh i got the opportunity to go to india um to lead a to guide a rafting trip but my compensation was just was plane tickets and being able to do the trip. And so I got a plane ticket to India, brought, brought my bike, and uh, that's about it. And um, made bikepacking gear in Ladakh in northern India, um, like cut up rafting dry bags and sewed them into frame bags and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, made a stove, blah, blah, blah all the gear and then um bicycled across uh the foot of the himalaya for about a year um rode from uh west west to east um wow through the himalaya or at least the foothills in himalaya (laughs) Uh, on uh Mm -hmm. you know yak trails and um walking trails and whatnot yeah all by myself and more yeah dead reckoning route finding Often, often without a map and certainly without language, um, because, well, Spanish doesn't serve at all in that part of the world. And <laughs> the lingua franca there is Hindi, but people don't really speak it if they can avoid it. And so I never really learned it because mm. everywhere, everything I heard was a different language. Um, you know, there's 600 official languages in yeah. India and more than that in actuality. Wow. So, you know, Everybody in northern India speaks some Hindi, but that's only when they're, you know, talking to a government official or watching, like, national news. <laughs> and the rest of the time, they use their own language. Mm-hmm. And since yeah. I was, you know, like, in rural, very rural places and changing zones a lot, I just, yeah, never learned much. Um, I could, you know, buy food yeah. and ask for Sounds a place like a challenge. Day, But, yeah, couldn't definitely couldn't ask for directions, really. I mean, I had some phrases that I... I could ask, but people wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I wouldn't be able to (laughs) interpret the answer necessarily or, and, or explain to someone that Mm -hmm. I actually meant what I was asking. That's something we ran into a lot in Mm -hmm. writing the spine as well. Like, uh, people just couldn't comprehend what we were up to. So if we asked for the road, you know, does this road go to this place? People would say, well, sort of, but the road's super bad. Why would you go that way? 
the road you want to take goes, is this one, the main road that goes this other mm-hmm. direction. And we would have to try mm-hmm. to explain that we wanted to ride the really bad road to nowhere and people just wouldn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and so what we figured yeah. out there was that what we needed to do was to ask for directions to the like really small middle of nowhere places that actually were on those roads. And so we would find a, a map mm-hmm. and basically write a list of towns that were in the like blank spaces where we were trying to go. Just like a list of names mm-hmm. um, of like mm-hmm. little estancias, little ranches, whatever. Any name we saw on the map that was in a blank spot, I would just have a list of them like written on a scrap of paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd get to a road that, you know, we were trying to take into that zone because um, it was always hard to find our way out of more populated areas. Once we got into the middle of nowhere, it was easy enough to like keep going like bopping along on these like mm-hmm. non trails or whatever. Cause that's all that was there. But when you're leaving town, mm-hmm. it's hard to find them. Yeah. So anyway, we would find what we thought it was and then be like, Hey, does this road go to Santa Maria or whatever? And uh, people would look at us and be like, why would you go there? And like, well, never mind that. <laughs> that's where we want to go. And uh, yeah. is this the road? And they'd say, kind of shake their head and say, yeah, but, it's really bad and no I possible. And we would smile and thank them and <laughs> ride off and, uh, you know, yeah. ride for a little ways. And then we'd find ourselves at an intersection with no one to ask and Rochambeau and go from there. But, you know, asking those kinds of questions in a language that you don't really speak is basically meaningless. So mm. I spent a lot of time in India and Nepal, just like completely blind. <laughs> um, uh, you know, headed vaguely east, um, kind of in the mountains, just seeing what happened. Yeah. It sounds like you enjoy that. I mean, and also, I mean, are you doing, you're doing this for yourself, right? I mean, or, or is some of this to share with others? Like is, is the idea that you're going to do this trip and then you're going to share it? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely for myself. Um, but, you know, the writing the spine experience and the reception we had from our blog and uh, how fun it is to look at for me even now, because Jacob did an incredible job. Like, I recommend people out there in Internet land to have a look like uh, he wrote really good stories mm-hmm. about our trip and took excellent photos. Like He worked hard to make our blog good. And. I don't know anyone who's, mm-hmm. I mean, we're all a little more aware of what that takes now because everybody's doing that to some extent on their like Instagram or whatever they do, mm-hmm. but it's a ton of work to uh, present your experience and present your experience well. And we, you know, went out of our way to like read adventure writing books to try to understand what made good ones good and bad ones bad. Mm-hmm. And most of them are bad because it's mm-hmm. really hard to convey the essence <laughs> of that any kind of extreme trip, you know, because there's so much like, uh, monotony, day-to-day similarity. You know, you can't be like, well, I biked, biked really far today and camped again. And then we saw something beautiful, you know, like <laughs> nobody wants right. to hear that. It's like, it's meaningless. Yeah. And so you have to figure out what the essence yeah. of a like section of time is and group a story around that. So we would try and write, Jacob mostly would write these mm. short stories basically. And then I would edit them and, you know, polish them into really a short story more than like a journal because journal isn't interesting, but a short story mm-hmm. definitely can be. And so we would, you know, only post like yeah. once a month or twice a month or something. Once we like 
distilled a section into something interesting or meaningful to us. And then we try and share that. But anyway, because mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. all of the journal entries kind of like standalone is like an interesting story in and of themselves. And the photos, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> again, we're doing something that like no one else has ever done definitely at that point, And still not a lot of people are doing. And uh, so it's that in and of itself is pretty interesting. So yeah, that realizing how cool a website like that or a platform like that can be when you're doing something that's pretty fringe, like what I like to do, um, inspires me to try and do that myself. Um, mm-hmm. So for instance, for this India trip, I um, I made my own blog for that and uh, took a camera for the first time in my life and um, forced myself to learn to take pictures, try to take pictures and um, write about it. Mm-hmm. Inspired in a similar way to Jacob because I'm like this is cool and I do want to share it with the world. But you know the primary objective mm-hmm. is definitely for myself. And as you say, I obviously enjoy the extreme and difficult and unknown. You know, there's, for instance, on that India trip, there was a section where I was on a trail. I knew what the trail was. It was like you know somewhere that serious mountaineers and backpacker types go. But and I, I crossed this glacier, um, mountain pass on my bike, actually met like this German backpacker up there. I think I kind of like blew his mind a little bit because I was, you know, carrying my bike across the glacier <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And uh, he he felt like he was doing something really extreme, which he was. It's like super rugged place to be mountaineering. But he was like had his GPS on and was like following the route mapped across this glacier with like extreme precision. And I wasn't even sure like which glacier I was mm-hmm. on. And, uh, I, I was like making my own route and I like, I saw this person. I was like, cool. I'm going to go talk to him and make sure I'm on Parang La, which is, you know, the name of this pass that I was trying to be on. <laughs> so I like left my gear and kind of like jogged half a mile across this glacier to talk to this guy. And he was like, he's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing over there? <clears throat> There's crevasses, you know, I'm like, the roots, the roots over here. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'll have to cross the crevasse a few times. Figure I probably will again. And he was just like, what? <laughs> anyway, um, but he, he confirmed that that was, <laughs> that was the glacier that I meant to be on. And we went our separate ways and had a super gnarly downhill, like basically a full day of downhill to get to a river bottom after that. And then the trail went straight up the other side of the canyon. And I decided to follow the river, uh, without knowing anything about the river. And of course, not too far down, mm-hmm. I got to a cliff. And it's a pretty interesting, you know, position to be in. Like, hey, okay, I could turn around right now. It's not that far. Right. There's a trail. I know the trail exists. The trail looks hellish for a bike. It doesn't look fun. Mm-hmm. Following this river does look fun and interesting, but here's a cliff. And like, if I yeah. if I go down this cliff, I might be able to get back up, but I don't know. and Maybe not. So I'm committed, right? And so, of course, what did I do? I threw my bike off the cliff and uh, jumped in (laughs) after it because there was a pool to jump into and my bike was floating there. Yeah. And then, you know, there was some more rideable sections, some more pushable sections, and then I got to a bigger cliff. (laughs) But at that point, I'm like, well, I maybe could get back up the other one. I definitely can't get up this one, but uh, here we go. And, you know, so I did that a few times and I made it out, obviously, yeah. from having this uh, conversation. I may be the only person who's ever gone down that, <laughs> that whole section. I don't know. Because um, it's, yeah. you know, pretty remote, rugged, rural. There isn't necessarily a reason to be there. 
but it was really beautiful mm-hmm. and cool. And, you know, biking like in an active glacial mm-hmm. river is pretty fun. Uh, fat bikes are amazing. And, yeah, you know, I did pop out after that uh, out of town and continued, did my thing. But not long after that, I was on like a yak trail and carried my bike for 10 days. And because um, it was just that unrideable, Whoa. which was obviously wow. grueling and unpleasant. And I was second guessing myself at that point. Like, what am I doing? This is stupid. Like, mm-hmm. who are you kidding? You can't bike here. Like, why, why are you doing this? And, um, I got out, I got finished that section. Yeah. I got to a road and I had a map and I was like, okay, I know where this road goes. I'm going to ride, follow this road and like, you know, have some easy riding or whatever. And, mm-hmm. um, that's just a more reasonable thing to do. But like, Literally within like two miles, I found, I saw a dirt road that was on the map that kind of dead ended, but looked like it probably connected through and like, Oh, I'll go that way. (laughs) (laughs) And naturally it did in fact dead end into a cliff and there wasn't really a way through. (laughs) So once again, I was rock climbing with my bike and, uh, about halfway up that, I mean, there was kind of a trail, but it was like, you know, very, very steep. Like the Himalaya are Mm -hmm. really rugged. They're super young mountains. There's a reason that the tallest mountains in the world are all there. The mountaineering there is famous, but also dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's just like they're unstable and they're incredibly steep. So I'm climbing up like this cliff face like that Mm -hmm. with my bike. Fortunately, the bike I took in India isn't a long tail and I have like more backpack or bike packing style gear. So it's a little easier to carry, a little lighter, mm-hmm. but it's still a heavily loaded fat bike. Um, and mm-hmm. I get about halfway up there and there's like this little jutting outcrop with a big ass bull yak on it. <laughs> and he, he's like, <laughs> this is my cliff, dude. Like, what, what are you doing here? And then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what do I do? Like, obviously I'm not going to like, I can't go on. This is where the trail goes. Can't fight with this bull yak. Like this thing weighs like five times what mm-hmm. I weigh. And this is his terrain, you know? So I just stood there for a while and yeah. eventually he like snorted and ran away and popped out further up the cliff as if to say, look how easy this is for me. This is my cliff, like whatever. That's how I interpreted it. Right. Yeah. But then I sat yeah. in this beautiful spot <laughs> where he'd been hanging out, had lunch and had this epic view and was like completely by myself in this totally incredible country where it's pretty hard to be alone um, because it's so populated. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just had this like beautiful transcendent experience and was like, okay, just admit it. Like, this is what you want to be doing. It doesn't have to make sense. Yeah. You don't even have to be able to explain this to other people, even people who do the kind of thing you do. Like, what I exact actually do mm-hmm. is a little fringe, you know? Like, even bike packers are like, what are you thinking, right? But uh, and I can't necessarily <laughs> describe it, but yeah. it's, it's, what I, it's what I want to be doing. It's just like what feeds my soul. And so I just owned it at that point. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Uh, you just carried your bike for 10 days and it sucked, but you're right back at it. And this just feels right. And yeah, that's, that's the closest I can come to answering that question, I guess. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. It's so awesome to hear your stories and yeah. What, what's the best way for people to like 
read about what you're doing and, and follow along with you? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the Writing the Spine website, writingthespine.com, it's still up there. It's definitely worth a visit. It's like so many mm-hmm. cool stories. But of course, that's like, you know, 12 years ago now or whatever we finished. I have a blog that I only update when I'm doing something that I reckon is like cool or noteworthy. So I haven't updated it in a while. Mm-hmm. It's called wandergoat.com. Wandergoat. And uh, that's that had okay. uh, that India trip. I started it for that. And then it's got a few other, like I did Patagonia with a sweetheart fairly recently. I think maybe I wrote about um, new pack rafting, bike packing in New Zealand on there too. Mm. So yeah, when, whenever I get up to something that oh, I cool. feel like is, is worth the effort of sharing, that's, that's where I write about it. I used to have Instagram, but I got uh, Insta canceled for some reason recently. I don't actually know why, but... Really? You got but, kicked off? Yeah. <laughs> and that, as far as I know, I wasn't doing anything controversial at all. I was just posting about, you know, bike packing. <laughs> but, <laughs> triages, but... Yeah. But anyway, wow. yeah. It's it's the Homeland Security. They're, they're watching you again, apparently. Something like that, for sure. Well, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat and uh yeah super inspiring and really awesome to see what you're up to so thanks absolutely so just one thing i want to say like important message i think is that like uh don't let not having the right gear or the like fear of trying a new thing stop you from checking out like exploring something you're dreaming about like just go do it for a weekend or whatever you know like Mm. I'm a gearhead. I love gear. I build custom bikes. Um, I'm involved with bike company, crust bikes. Like it, it's something I do, but you really don't need the right bike to have fun. You don't need the right bike to bike pack. You don't need the right gear. You can make it. You can get by. You can do it. So just challenge yourself. Get out there. Have fun. That's the important bit. Yeah, it's a great message. Super inspiring. Well, we will have links uh, to the sites that Goat mentioned in the show notes. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.